Good morning, saints. Before we go to the Lord in prayer, let me just answer the question that is at the front of all of your minds. Yes, this is the beginning of a mustache. It's what happens when I shower and leave the house before my wife opens her eyes and wakes up. We'll see how long it lasts. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Your word that increases and prevails mightily. We thank you for your spirit that is here and at work, convicting us of sin, granting us faith to behold the beauty and the strength of our Savior, assuring us that we belong to you in Christ. Would you now, by that spirit, lead us into all truth? We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 19. And as you're turning there, I just want to point out the obvious. Um, not many of us here this morning who call St. George's home grew up in Anglican churches. Is that true? That's true. Many of you were, uh, are people who have ended up at St. George's Anglican Church because you got saved here over the last year, five, ten, and it just so happens to be an Anglican church. For others, you have migrated here from other churches because we preach the Bible. And so you do not have a history of being an Anglican. Well, let me begin by saying that there are good reasons why we are Anglican. I'm not going to get into those right now. Um, but if you want, you can ask me over coffee or send me an email, or you can go back on our videos and check out a St. George's 101 that we did about a year and a half ago, and it'll explain those. But in another sense, what really matters is that we are a Christian church. We are Anglican, but what really matters is that we preach, trust, believe in the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what really matters. And so in, in one sense, it really matters that we're Anglican. In another sense, what really matters is not that at all. Look, I'm trying to work my way into a thought here, so just give me a moment. If you either do a Google search of the yellow pages in Burlington, or does anyone even still own printed yellow pages? I don't know. Um, the last time that I actually looked at a printed Yellow Pages book, I remember flipping to the, to the religious section and looking at the churches, and back then I remember counting just over 100 churches in the city of Burlington. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Now, there are good reasons and bad reasons why there are 100 churches in Burlington. Can you think of some of those? Well, some of the good reasons is that it's different expressions of the body of Christ in one city with different emphases on different parts of the gospel. And I think that in some ways that's God-honoring. Well, that's one of the good reasons. Perhaps some of the bad reasons would include things like differences in schism over petty matters. Well, that's a bad reason. Another one that is a good reason gone bad is maybe there are churches who have departed from the faithful witness of Scripture and from the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so they actually, in a biblical sense, cease to be churches, and they have to 
divide in order to multiply and remain healthy. All of this to say that there are probably a hundred and some different local churches in the city of Burlington. Um, you have chosen to come here, right? This is where you come to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to be fed in his word, to fellowship, to serve, to grow in Christ. And, you know, different um, church denominations are notable for different emphases. One of the strengths of our tribe, Reformed Anglicans, is that we take the Bible very, very seriously. One of the weaknesses, one of the accusations that's leveled against Reformed Anglicans is this, and this is what I'm working towards. It can be true at a practical level that although we take the Bible seriously, we can rightly be accused of undervaluing the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. It's true. I've heard it said that our trinity, you know, in our tribe, our trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. It's an accusation that can be rightly leveled against us. And so I thought that today we would try to counter that. Today we're going to do a follow-up sermon. Claudine pointed out that um, we had the exact same passage read again as what we read last week. Did anyone even notice? Yeah, Acts 19. And so this morning during our sermon time, I gotta, I gotta confess to you. Look, there's a lot of setup work that I need to do to get where we wanna go, okay? Um, this is the first time in almost two decades that I have preached the same passage in consecutive services from this pulpit. First time ever on, two, on consecutive Sundays. It's also one of the precious few times that you will ever hear a sermon from this pulpit that is topical rather than expositional. But I think it's pastorally important and necessary. So get ready, have your Bibles in hand. We're going to be flipping around a lot. And stay keen so that you can follow along. Last week, we looked at Ephesians, uh, rather, we looked at Acts chapter 19, Paul in Ephesus. And what we saw primarily was what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is it not? Okay, that's what we focused on. What is the receiving of the Holy Spirit not? Okay, that's what we really unpacked. This week, we're going to say what baptism in the Holy Spirit is. To say the same thing in a different way, we're now going to devote this sermon to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Last week, we pointed out how in Acts chapter 19, this is a passage that is frequently misused. It's misused as a proof text that some people would use to suggest that there is a separate, subsequent work of grace that is after repentance and regeneration for Christian men and women. If you want to find out more about that, just go to the YouTube page and watch from last week. But we are committed to reading the Bible and to reading it well. And as students of Scripture who hold out that this is the very Word of God, we have to begin today by acknowledging that 
you cannot draw direct lines from narrative texts in Scripture to direct application in today's Christian life. Let me say that differently. You, you cannot take narrative texts like what we have in Acts and derive from them doctrinal norms. When you come to a narrative text like Acts, what you have is um, the unfolding story of the propagation of the gospel. You see God's saving acts in history being played out over time. Let me say it more directly and bluntly. When you come to these narrative texts, you have the account of the progression of the gospel and you have God doing things in these narrative moments that he is not doing anymore. Because the, the gospel was progressing out and this is a snapshot or a screenshot of a moment in time. Now some of you are already scratching your head or getting mad at me, but let me give you an example. Back when the Acts of the Apostles was written, that was the apostolic age when God was writing the New Testament. Is God still writing Scripture? No. So it's clear that, what, that what's happening in these narrative texts is capturing a moment in history that is screenshotting the propagation and the spread of the gospel. It does not mean that things that happen there can be directly transposed onto today without interpretation and application. Okay, some of you are super keen on that because you're Bible nerds like me, and others of you are thinking, why in the world are we still talking about this? Is RD just looking to pick a fight? And the answer is no. The reason that we are revisiting this again today is because it's just, it's in the scriptures. You know, we're moving through Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and Acts 19 just happened to be the next chapter. But the second reason that I think we need to take more time to look at this, to get this right, the work and the person of the Holy Spirit, is not merely an academic exercise. It's not one that, that merely gives you knowledge that puffs you up. Instead, it's a matter of assurance for the Christian man and woman. And it's a matter of power. There are far too many Christians who have been negatively affected by this message that they are deficient or in need of something more. It leaves them praying for and longing for something that they already have. The infilling of the Holy Spirit. It means that far too many Christians spend their entire Christian life thinking that they are not yet filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore they spend their entire Christian life either sitting on their hands doing nothing, waiting for the Lord to return, or clinging on by their fingernails hoping that they're going to make it long enough. When in fact, what Christian men and women need to do is to have a proper understanding of the infilling of the Holy Spirit We need to live into that which is already ours in regeneration in Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, 
We need to live into that truth and to live out of that truth. If you are a Christian man or woman, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, then you have, by definition, received the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5. So, walk by that Spirit. Keep in step with that Spirit. Ephesians 5. Don't waste your time with debauchery, but be ongoingly filled with that Holy Spirit. It's already yours. So today I want us to consider the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and we're going to get into specifics in a moment. But first we need to clear up a couple of concepts that were left hanging last week. It strikes me in pastoring that... um, Often we as Christians, we take credit for the work of the Spirit while at the same time reducing the Holy Spirit to tingly feelings or warm fuzzies. Do you know what I mean by that? Many years ago, I was at another church. I'm not going to say which one. And there was a woman preacher who was preaching on Pentecost Sunday. You can see that this is already heading for disaster. And she said to the entire church, she said, do you know what the Holy Spirit is? She said, it's like when you are putting together a puzzle and you find just the right puzzle piece and it drops so neatly into place and you just feel like, oh, there, it's all coming together. That's the Holy Spirit. Like, really? I don't know, man. That's not what I read in Scripture. It's critically important that we um, use precise language when we are considering the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you have your, your Bibles open. Look at Acts chapter 19. Look closely at verse 2 and verses 5 to 6. Verse 2. Paul asks them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, this was a question that was particular and unique to that moment in the unfolding story of God's saving acts in history. He was asking the Ephesians what baptism they had received. This was this snapshot in time. These Ephesians were Old Testament believers, they believed right up to the point of the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. They had all of that sorted. But that's a category that no longer exists in the world today. Verses 5 to 6. We're told that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 6. Paul lays his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. About 12 of them in all. Here's the point. The language that's used here in Scripture is critically important. Remember, what we're, what we're looking at here is how sometimes even Christian men and women can take credit for what is actually the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, the language that's being used here in Acts chapter 19 is the language of baptism. 
Did you hear that? The contrasting of the baptism of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of the Spirit. We know from Scripture that baptism is the sign and the Spirit is the thing being signified. When Christian men and women are baptized, they are being obedient to one of the two sacraments that was instituted by the Lord. Now, a sacrament is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's God's means of grace because he knows that we have bodies and we have minds and we need to experience things if they're going to be truly, deeply meaningful to us. And so God gives us these sacraments. Let's press into what's happening here in Acts chapter 19. These Ephesian 12 men are receiving the Holy Spirit in the context of being baptized into Jesus. That's what's happening. Now in Romans chapter 6, Paul will later talk about baptism in these terms. He's going to say that when you are baptized, it's a picture of a deeper reality that your, your old self has been buried and that you've been raised to new life. So in the context of Acts chapter 19, when Paul is showing these guys that their infilling of the Holy Spirit is tied to their baptism into Jesus, here's what it means. It means that their old life, let's make it personal, my old life, my work, my conscientiousness, my determination and resilience, my constancy of spirit and will, I used to think that those were the things that were going to save me. But when you are baptized into Jesus, when you are baptized into the Spirit, it's the process of all of those things dying, being buried. Look, you used to think that all of those things in your life were what would save you and sustain you and keep you. But, but Paul describes this as being baptized into Jesus all of your former self-ambition and self-reliance and hope that was anchored in yourself, you thought that those things were all about you, but those things have now been buried and you've been raised to new life in Christ. That's what it means to be baptized in Jesus. To realize that it was never actually about you in the first place, but rather those things are all the work of the Spirit. The old self has been buried, and you have been raised to a new life in Christ. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. By in Galatians chapter 2, Paul is able to say with confidence, I have been crucified with Christ. I, right, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Acts chapter 19, when we are pulling these principles through and reading them well and applying them well, 
we conclude this. That to be baptized in Jesus is to have your old self buried and your new life brought forth in Jesus Christ. And that is to be filled with the Spirit. So Christian man or woman, the Holy Spirit is not tingly feelings, but a new life. God granting you the miracle of saving you, sanctifying you, gifting you, assuring you, and now everything in your life Everything in this new life in Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's no longer you, baptized in Jesus Christ, ego, old self, buried, raised to new life in Christ. It's all the work of the Spirit. Okay, let's lay one more piece of groundwork from the text before we move on to the works, the work of the Holy Spirit. There are two issues that come up in verse 6. Okay. Verse 6, and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began, what does it say? Speaking in tongues and? Right. It's funny, I, I had a couple of emails after the sermon last week, and one of the things that I was asked by a couple of different people who were preparing for their weekly growth groups, they said to me, so, all right, Acts 19, verse 6. R.D., is it necessary that when you are truly baptized in the Spirit that you will speak in tongues? In a word, no. How do we know this? Well, we know this as students of God's Word because we see throughout many different places in Scripture, including in Acts, where people are expressly filled with the Holy Spirit and do not speak in tongues. So we know that while it is possible and while tongues is lifted as a gift of the Spirit, we're going to talk about that in a moment, it is not necessary that if you are baptized in the Spirit, if you are baptized in Jesus Christ, you will therefore speak in tongues. See, that's a case where people are doing exactly what we were talking about earlier and deriving doctrinal norms from narrative texts that are just simply not there. Second question. So they spoke in tongues and prophesied. What about prophecy? Well, I think the first thing that we have to do as honest readers of Scripture is to acknowledge that prophecy is a gift at work in the church today Please don't throw things at me. Uh, Brock and Brian and Dan and Sean Lee and I were talking a lot about this this week. And while I don't think systematic theological categories are particularly helpful, um, we said if we had to fall in one, which would it be? Right? Are we continuationists? Are we cessationists? Are you guys familiar with these categories? And what we concluded is that we would be continuationists with clear definitions. We believe that the Holy Spirit of God is still at work in the life of the Christian, in the church, 
through the church and out into the world by the power of the Spirit through the gifts of the Spirit. We're continuationists, but with clear definitions. No place is this seen more readily than when it comes to the issue of the ongoing gift of prophecy. We believe that prophecy is an ongoing gift of the Spirit as long as you define it very carefully and biblically. See, prophecy in Scripture in the New Testament is about forthtelling, not foretelling. Do you know what I mean? Prophecy in the New Testament church is not about crystal ball magic foretelling the future. It's about calling God's people to repentance and back to his word. And so when the Holy Spirit is poured out, one of the things that happens is this gift of prophecy is at work. But it's about calling people back to God's word. It's not about personal prophecies where Christians ought to now be going around telling each other who they ought to marry. Look, it's all about God's word. And the Holy Spirit empowering people with discernment and wisdom and knowledge and understanding so that they can correctly apply God's word in the life of the church in their relationships with other Christians prophesying to one another in the power of the Spirit, calling them back to the Word of God. Okay, again, let me say it more bluntly. In the New Testament and in the church today, if personal prophecy does not align with Scripture, it is wrong. And if personal prophecy does align with Scripture, it is unnecessary. God has spoken. He has given you his word. The gift of prophecy that is now at work in the church by the power of the Spirit is the gift of calling people back to the very word of God. Well, we're about to encounter a couple of personal prophecies in the book of Acts. And we're going to see how they can go terribly wrong. Okay, so now we've set everything aside for the moment, okay? So we talked about tongues, we talked about prophecy. Um, let's look at eight things that the Spirit does in the life of believers. If you read through Scripture, and I just want to do a bit of a quick theological survey, um, if you read through Scripture, there are at least eight things that the Holy Spirit works in the life of those whom God is saving and has saved in Christ. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does is to convict us of our sin. Perhaps you've experienced that in your own life. You are living carefree, a life of debauchery and sin. But those very things that are actually sin and debauchery and death and destruction, they feel like they're bringing you some measure of joy and happiness. Then the Holy Spirit works a miracle in your heart where the very things that you used to love, you now hate. You see them for the rebellion and for the death that they are. 
That's not because you're particularly smart. It's because the Holy Spirit has worked a miracle in you. Conviction of sin is a work of the Spirit. Second one, repentance. That same Spirit that convicts you of your sin will cause you to truly change. That's what repentance means, to do an about-face, to turn around. You used to think and live as though this were true. The Holy Spirit has now convicted of your sin. He's worked a miracle in your heart. You've now done a complete 180. He's caused you to deeply change. The miracle of grace. First, that you'd be convicted of your sin, and secondly, that you would behold Jesus as your Savior and repent. The third work of the Spirit is this broad category of conversion, regeneration. It is the Holy Spirit of God that brings you from death to life, that causes you to be born again. Consider what Jesus told Nicodemus. He said, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, what? I got to go back in my mother. I don't see how that's going to make any sense. And Jesus is like, no, no, man, you got to be born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit that convicts you of your sin, causes you to repent, is the same Holy Spirit that causes you to be born again and gives you a new life in Christ. Fourthly, the fourth work of the Holy Spirit is the work of sanctification. If you look at the Christian life, either your own or those around you, and you take a wide enough slice, you will notice that Christians tend to grow in godliness. They tend to grow in Christ-likeness. Well, that sanctification is the work of the Spirit. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 5 in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. See, this is the Spirit. This is what the Spirit bears in the life of the Christian. This is sanctification. Listen to this list. Galatians 5.22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The work of the Spirit. Convict you of your sin, lead you to repentance, cause you to be born again, and then sanctify you day by day. The fifth work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian would fall into the category of the gifts of the Spirit. Now, in Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have lists that are given. I actually want to take a moment just to read those to you because I'd like you to consider which of these gifts the Holy Spirit has graced to you. Romans chapter 12, verse 4. You can open your Bibles to it if you'd like. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not always have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Friends, look, we're building a picture here. The same spirit that convicts you of your sin, that causes you to repent, that brings you to conversion and new life, that's working out your sanctification, that same spirit has graced you as a believer with gifts. First Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and these are, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who appoints to each one individually as he wills. Okay. The same Spirit who convicts you of your sin, causes you to repent, grants you new life in Christ, sanctifies you, and gifts you with various gifts for the good of the church. The sixth thing that the Holy Spirit does, it is the work of the Spirit to grant the Christian man or woman assurance of their salvation. Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes and says, and because you are sons, remember he's writing to Christians, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, here's how this works. At different times in your walk with the Lord, you might have questions. You might have doubts. There may be times where you feel like, am I truly a Christian? It is a ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. It is one of his works to assure you that God is your father in Jesus Christ and that you are his son. That's a work of the Spirit, that gift of assurance. And now maybe you're sitting this morning and you're thinking, well, R.D., I don't know, like maybe some gender-inclusive language. I'm not a son, but I'm a daughter. This is where Scripture is so wise. Because when Paul says it is the Spirit of Jesus that's at work in you that causes you to cry out, Abba, Father, to know that you are a son, and if a son, an heir. 
Paul's using the word for firstborn son. It means that it is the Spirit's work to assure you that you not only belong to God in Jesus Christ, but you hold a place in the family of God, and that is the place of a firstborn son and an heir. Think about that. Whether you are a man or a woman, this was a culturally profound message back then as it is today. Men and women are caused by the Holy Spirit to be adopted into the family of God and then granted the Holy Spirit to witness to them that whether you are a man, whether you are a woman, whether you were born first or born last, the Spirit of God is causing you to be assured that you hold the position of firstborn son and heir. It's the Spirit's work to grant the assurance. Uh, the seventh thing, perseverance. There's only one more. The Spirit of God not only convicts you of your sin, causes you to be repent, causes you to be born again, sanctifies you, gifts you with a grace, grants you assurance, but it's also the Spirit's work to cause you to persevere to the end. Think about how good news that is. If you're a Christian man or woman and you're feeling discouraged and you're thinking, how can I ever make my way to heaven? Here's the truth of Scripture. The Holy Spirit of God will see you through. Ephesians chapter 1 Verses 13 to 14, Paul is writing to this very same group of Christians back in Ephesus a little while later. And he says, in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, okay, when you were saved, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Look, you know that it's true. If it was possible for you to lose your salvation, you would. If you persevering to the end was dependent upon the constancy of your will and your faithfulness, not one of us would make it to the end. But what Paul is saying to these Ephesian Christians, now through his letter later, but earlier in Acts 19, he's saying, it is a work of the Holy Spirit to be a down payment, a seal, a guarantee that you will make it to the end. The Spirit's work to cause you to persevere. And then the eighth and final one, it's the Spirit's work to see you through to glory. Okay, these are the eight works of the Spirit. And look, for your Christian life, none of this is possible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's the good news. If the very sins that used to be attractive to you are now repugnant, if you have ever been drawn to Jesus and trusted him as your Savior, if you have ever been born again, 
if you have ever grown in godliness and Christ-likeness, if you have ever seen yourself operating in a gift or a grace of the Holy Spirit, if you have ever had assurance that God is your Father and heaven is your home, that's because the Holy Spirit of God is at work in you. God's work and not yours. These are the works of the Spirit. So for what purpose does the Holy Spirit do these things? Um, you might look at that and you say, well, the Holy Spirit is at work in me and through me and in the church, and in one sense, he's doing it for me. Sure, right? To some extent, he is. He is convicting you. He's saving you, he's causing you to be born again, he's sanctifying you, he's gifting you, and you could look at those things and say, yeah, those are for me and for my edification. Partly true. But the principal reason that the Holy Spirit does these things is to bring glory to Christ. You see, this is how Trinitarian theology works, that the Spirit glorifies the Son, and the Son brings people to, brings his own people to the Father. And then the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. So every time that a sinner looks to the Lord Jesus Christ and trusts in him as his Savior, the Son is glorified by the Holy Spirit. It's not principally or primarily for you and for your comfort, but for the glory of God in Christ. Let's finally apply this to our lives. Okay? Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And I don't want to spend a lot of time in this because we're going to preach through Ephesians after we're done. Acts, look at Ephesians chapter 5. We've laid a difficult but, a, but important theological foundation how do we read the Bible? And now the question is, what do we do with this information about the Holy Spirit? How do we live in light of this truth? Well, there are a lot of passages that we could turn to, but I've chosen this one because it's written to the Ephesians. Acts chapter 19 is Paul's ministry to the Ephesians, so we thought we'd look at what he says to them about the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if those are the works of the Spirit, and if it is true, and it is, that everyone who has been baptized into Jesus is filled with that Spirit by definition, then what should you do with that as a Christian man or woman? 
what Paul says in verse 15, here's what you do. You as a Christian are by definition already filled with that spirit. The spirit has done that work in you. And now you should look carefully how you walk, how you live. Pay attention. He says don't, don't live in a way that's unwise, but live in a way that's wise. And what marks this way of living that's wise is verse 16. You want to be someone who makes the most of the time, right? Paul says, you've been filled with the Spirit, so now look around you and see that there's so much evil all around you. Don't waste this moment that God has entrusted to you as a Spirit-filled Christian man or woman. The days are evil. Verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. So what does that foolishness look like? See, Paul is setting up a contrast here. You are a spirit-filled Christian. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be unwise, but be wise. Verse 18, here's what it looks like. In the original Greek, it is, and do not be ongoingly, perpetually drunk with wine. For that is debauchery. But instead, and it's the same verb tense, be ongoingly, perpetually filled with the Spirit. This is where we're going to stop for today. If you are a Christian man or woman, you are by definition filled with the Holy Spirit. So why does Paul then instruct Christians to be ongoingly, perpetually filled with the Spirit? What's going on there? Well, you know as well as I do that the Spirit leaks. Faith dissipates. Look, by the time I get in my car and drive out onto Palladium Road, I've already forgotten the gospel. I live as though the gospel is not true, and I need to be reminded. And so, Christian man or woman, you do not need a separate subsequent work of the Spirit. You do not need to be filled with the Spirit or baptized in the Spirit as something distinct. But what you need to do is to be wise, to be ongoingly filled with the Spirit to point your life in the direction of God's good work by the power of the Spirit. And when you do, you will not waste the time with debauchery and drunkenness, but you'll redeem it as someone who's wise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that is doing all of the work. I ask and pray now this morning that those who have not yet bowed their knee to Jesus as Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you would convict them of, your, of their sin, that you would 
Grant them the miracle to look to Jesus as a faithful Savior. I pray, God, for those who are struggling with assurance that your spirit would bear witness to their spirit that they belong to you. I ask God for those who are looking for ways to serve in the church that you would make clear to them the various ways that your spirit has gifted and graced them. Lord, for those who are fearful about the future, I pray that you would convince our hearts that it is your spirit that causes us to persevere to the end. May we be ongoingly filled with that spirit. We pray this in the glory of your name. Amen.